Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and I created Founders Focus to help share free resources and actionable advice. Together, we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by my awesome team at Upside. Please visit foundersfocus.com to join the live video sessions or to catch up on past topics. I am super excited to introduce you all to our co-host for today, Amy Stedman. Uh, Amy it has one of the greatest titles ever, and if I thought I could pull off such a title, I would have it too. Um, she is the Chief Get Shit Done Officer, also known as the founder and uh, CEO or COO oh, of uh, yep. COO of Future Proof. And uh, Amy is a to total rock star. And if, uh, if you don't find yourself incredibly thirsty at the end of this episode, we have failed you. And you're going to see why in a moment when Amy introduced herself. So Amy, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And I uh, want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my entrepreneurial journey really starts with my parents, actually, and my immigration journey. So my parents and I moved here from Syria when I was about 10 years old, so my parents could become entrepreneurs. So growing up, I was always really curious about their businesses and eventually ended up going to business school um, to learn how to be an entrepreneur myself. Um, so at the time, it's 2011, I was in my mid-20s, uh, we're seeing box wine at every party, tailgate, river float trip, but no one really loved the wine that they were drinking, and the brands didn't really appeal to our generation anyway. It was more like for retired people or something. Um, so my business partners, Justin, Brad, Jason, and Dan, came up with the idea to make box wine less boring. So I actually met Justin at Entrepreneurship Club, and he kind of recruited me to join the team. At the time, I was a DJ on the student radio station at UT Austin, and we were the MBAs that always wanted to go to the concerts together, the music festivals. You know, music was really at the center of our social lives. So we wanted to create an alcohol beverage brand that revolutionized box wine and was all about bringing people together and really centered around music. So we created a bunch of prototypes, you know, lean startup style. Um, we uh, tested out different sort of radio style packaging with different designers online and printed stickers, emptied out, you know, Franzia boxes and filled them with our own kind of mixes of alcohol, lemonade, other mixes, you know, stuff like that. Um, we went to parties here in Austin, large apartment complex pools. Um, we tested it out, you know, with our friends and things like that. We probably had more than a thousand points of feedback on product development of Beatbox back then. Um, and so we launched the product in stores actually in March 2013, right before we graduated in May, uh, with the world's first ready to drink portable party punch in a box wine format. So that was the very beginning story. And uh, you know, we graduated. I continued to work on our company sort of nights and weekends. I had a day job at the time, um, actually at UT. And while I was working there, we our company got discovered by RNDC, one of the biggest wine and spirits distributors in the whole country. So, um, and that was actually just through networking uh, through UT as well. So, you know, Alan Dreben, who's one of the owners of RNDC, met us through that community. Um, he actually took us under his wing and like helped us with packaging. Like, you know, I was like 25 years old and completely outside the alcohol industry. So I didn't know anything uh, that, you know, about the industry really at all. So he really helped us figure out how the three tier system works, all that. 
Um, so we launched with them and actually got introduced to HEB, which is a very important grocery retailer here in Texas. Um, and we were doing all these tastings all the time and handing out samples and people always saying, you should be on Shark Tank. You know, you guys should go on Shark Tank. Um, like that's something you can just go do, right? But, um, you know, actually in the summer or spring of 2014, I was still kind of working my day job, um, doing all of this stuff uh, nights and weekends. And we ended up uh, doing a casting call for Shark Tank during South by Southwest and um, ended up pitching on season six of the show. Um, Mark Cuban ended up investing one of the largest investments of all time on the show, which is completely surreal and not something that I expected at all. Um, so I got to quit my day job um, at that time. So that, that was kind of how we got started with Beatbox and I was able to go and be an entrepreneur full time. That's, that's awesome. So I want to, I want to dive back to, we're going to, we'll come back to Shark Tank, but talk a little bit about your experience, um, you know, having that day job and sort of the side hustle. And <laughs> we have a lot of people that, that are part of Founders Focus that are in that mode. They've got, they've got whatever they're doing to kind of pay the bills and they've got this passion that they're, they would love to get to a place where they could, they could transition there. And, and um, I have to say, having made a lot of weird punches in trash cans, it never occurred to me to put them in boxes and sell them. So <laughs> I'm a little disappointed in myself for not seeing the opportunity that you saw, but right. you know, it would have been easy for you to, to sort of put it aside and say, Hey, that was a nice project to do in business school. Kind of what kept you going and how did you kind of manage those, that tension there between, uh, you know, doing a good job while at the same time, and trying to keep this dream alive. Yeah. So fortunately, I had a very supportive role when I graduated. There was a role actually at the entrepreneurship department at UT uh, for somebody that was starting a startup that wanted a day job, basically. So they created this role where I helped run the business plan competition. You know, I had a background in online marketing, so I helped them do that. But they also were supportive and let me take calls about Shark Tank and Beatbox and things like that. Um, which I, you know, if I was working a different kind of job would, would make it really tough. And honestly, it was really tough. It was probably the hardest, you know, one of the hardest seasons of this journey, just because I was working so much. I was literally working more than two full-time jobs. Um, I remember, you know, every Friday and Saturday, even though we were going and doing sampling events and going to music events and things like that, it was still work. You know, I was completely sober the whole time and very exhausted. Um, and we would keep Sundays sacred. Uh, so we would never do any work on Sunday. That was the one rule we had. And I spent a lot of time like researching meditation, researching, uh, you know, mental health. I use that Headspace app. Um, cause, cause when you are putting so much on yourself when you're basically working two full-time jobs or more, um, you know, you need to maximize every minute that you have for relaxation and for rest and for catch up. And so um, learning about meditation and mental health helped me kind of just manage it all. And, you know, obviously it wasn't easy. There were many uh, super hard, dark, struggling days for sure. I don't want to like sugarcoat it, but having a supportive community and, and just kind of being prepared for it, having kind of a plan for it. Um, made it worthwhile. And then I was able to, you know, work through it and get to the other side of it. And that was very important, obviously. So I'm going to 
push on a couple of other things you brought up because I think they're important. You talked about having a number of co-founders. I have to admit that you rattled them off so quickly. There was no hope for me. <laughs> but luckily for you, you didn't, you probably didn't forget anybody. Yeah. So it was either three or four people. Is that right? So we started with a, a group of five of us and then Spencer, our first employee as well. And then when we graduated, two of the original five teams, you know, wanted to pursue other directions of their career, right? They didn't want to go full-time uh, with it or pursue full-time with it at that moment. Um, and so they ended up just staying on as advisors, friends of the brand, you know, we're still close with them today, but um, Justin, Brad, and myself ended up being the three of the original group that ended up doing it full-time this whole time, I guess. Yeah. And was that, was that the discussion, was it an easy one? Was it contentious? Was there discussions around equity and ownership and, and those kinds of things? And, and if you're okay to share them, how did you, not so much the details, but how did you work through that so that you could come to a place where, you know, it sounds like they're the two that departed are still power fans of yours and, and you all were able to go and build the company the way you wanted to? Yeah, I mean, we knew that, you know, for example, uh, one of the partners was a car guy and he was able to have this opportunity to go design cars and that was his dream job. And the other partner, he was really passionate about travel and he had an opportunity to work in the airline industry, hospitality industry and travel the world. And so we, you know, we kind of all knew that that was their direction when we were forming the company. And for them, it was more sort of like a business school project an investment, something that they were passionate about, but not something they wanted to do every single day. And so, yes, we did have discussions about it um, from an equity perspective. They were more limited in terms of that initial sort of breakdown, just because, you know, over time there, I mean, the model of vesting works really well for any kind of executive or co-founder situation. And you can just kind of align on uh, how many years and what percentage of equity makes sense for that role um, and just do it that way. Um, we didn't know uh, so much about that when we started the company. It was like 23 at the time, but um, I think, you know, it's definitely worth doing the research and just being really formal about it up front so that everybody knows what they're getting into. And, you know, as, as formal as you can be and as structured as you can be and consulting your lawyers and things like that up front, it just avoids drama down the line. Um, so, yeah, not being said that, you know, there aren't hurt feelings or things don't end up that way, but with, with all of us, we're, we all know that we just have really great intentions and nobody's out there to get anybody. And uh, we've always kind of been able to come to consensus, thank God. So That's great. Look, I think your point about vesting schedules is really important. Um, I think for all founders involved, especially in an early stage of a company, because not everybody's going to be committed for the next four, five, six, seven, 10 years of the, of the, of the adventure. Uh, so smart to, to sort of pull those things together. Um, I, I want to bring, there was a question in the chat, but it, it related to your, your founder, your founding team. You had a few folks that wanted to pursue other things. What, what brought the three of you and, and you can speak just for yourself. How did you decide that pursuing, you know, an alcoholic beverage company targeted at you know, your audience was where you wanted to spend the next, you know, three to 10 years of your life. Like, how did you, why that, you know, I understand you saw the opportunity and then you could see it from there, but 
you know, you could have done, you probably could have done anything you wanted to. So why that particular sector? What was passion? What was, what drove you from that standpoint? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, it's, you know, you can do anything. It just depends what you're motivated by. Uh, For me, I was motivated to be successful financially. I wanted to do something that was scalable where, you know, if I worked really hard in my twenties and thirties, that that would set me up and my family from Syria that, you know, it's, it's very impactful for me to have wealth in my family. So um, that was a goal of mine. There's also a goal that, you know, I've always been passionate about music. I've always been, you know, I took a personality test recently and uh, said I was the socializer, right? So, and, and Justin and Brad also have that same personality type, by the way, we all took the same one. So we love this uh, culture of the party host and Um, you know, the brand of Beatbox is really us and our personality and our kind of friendship together um, as co-founders. So the brand ethos is really exciting to me. Um, And I love music, but I can't play anything. And so (laughs) I can't be in a band. And so the only way for me to always be at music festivals is to be an alcohol, right? It just makes too much sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, I found an industry that needed innovating that had, uh, you know, it was very extremely valuable for somebody from the next generation to bring innovation to it, because it's a valuable industry, um, as well as the opportunity to be sort of alongside my passions involving music and um, being social, I guess. Uh, and yeah, so it's kind of a combination of the financial opportunity and the lifestyle. Um, I think I definitely could have made more money doing something else, but I couldn't have had a better experience or lifestyle doing anything else. Um, so that's what I've been valuing. That's great. So I, I want to talk briefly about, uh, just to pull on the shark tank thread, yeah. lots of people have all kinds of relationships with the show. Um, you obviously had a, a good experience on it. Was there one kind of takeaway for you that, uh, you know, if you were advising other people who maybe have the opportunity or are going to, are going to kind of pitch that you'd say, Hey, this was kind of the, the key thing that I learned from that experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, with Shark Tank, you just have to think about it with, with all fundraising, right? You have to think about it from the other person's perspective, what's in it for them. And so for Shark Tank, you're thinking from the investor's perspective, that's Mark Cuban's perspective, what's in it for him, but also for Shark Tank's perspective, it's a TV show. So you have to give them really good TV. So if you want to be on Shark Tank and you're pitching, um, you know, most founders are very oriented around their business, but, you know, you have to be that larger than life version of yourself when you're pitching to those producers and, you know, come with the energy, come with the passion. And, you know, we were wearing all neon outfits and <laughs> jumping up and down about our product to get their attention. And so I think, you know, just putting your best foot forward in terms of your passion when you're doing those casting calls, as well as um, looking at the opportunity. Um, and for any angel investing or fundraising, I think it's really important to, again, look at your investors' perspectives. We were looking at, you know, every shark and what they had invested in, and what questions they had asked. We watched almost every single episode of Shark Tank before we walked on that stage. And so we knew we wanted to align with Mark. He had a lot of investments in entertainment properties and other sort of uh, 
you know, complementary marketing things and digital things that he was doing that we really wanted to be involved with. And, and we knew that we would fit right in, in terms of being a millennial product that could, you know, flow right into, you know, programs that he was doing with his entertainment properties and things like that. So just trying to find investors that already have a portfolio that could be enhanced right away by you coming on board is I think the easiest way to get those early uh, seed money beyond friends and family, like, because you can provide that instant value for them. Uh, in addition to obviously you want to make the money through their investment. Yeah. I, I, I think you're spot on, on a few different levels. One is understanding your audience, but you, you, you brought up something that I think very few, I shouldn't say few, I've run into regularly founders who don't do their homework, right? They don't go and dig. You said you watched every episode, you unpacked each one of their, their portfolios. What are the kinds of things they invest in? What's going to resonate? You're on a TV show. It's got to be entertaining. There's a set of work that you have to do to really understand your audience and who you're talking to. And I think uh, it's just it's so important to put an emphasis on that as just part of the work that we have to do. And I run into a lot of founders like, well, I can't raise money. And then I hear their pitch and it's a rambling eight minute, you know, diatribe that I can barely understand. That's not going to get you where you want to go. Um, so it's an important piece of the puzzle. And, and in your case, there's a lot of public information. So that gave you a, a, another advantage because it's all there. It's not like you had to guess. Um, all right. So I want to move on because you, you talked a lot in your, in your, um, in the description of your business and how you got where you are as, you know, a, a relatively straightforward thing. There's a bunch of people hanging around. We're going to use the idea of, you know, we're going to upgrade crappy boxed wine into great boxed beverages for people. And we're going to sell them at festivals. You probably said it more eloquently than that, but that's why I'm not pitching your company and you are. <laughs> that said, you made a decision to layer into it a, sort of conscious capitalism. I think you became a B Corp and you didn't lead with that. You didn't talk about it as if, hey, we're the leading organic blah, 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 or we're, you know, we're doing it in this way. So I'm curious, kind of where did that enter into the, into the dynamic for you? And, and sort of how did you get there? And, and kind of where are you now with both the brand and the product as it relates to kind of having a more mission orientation? Well, I think my business partners have their own story, but I think it really does start with our founding team. I mean, you know, my parents moved here with their young daughter in the hopes of pursuing opportunities of entrepreneurship in the U.S. And then 16 years later that, you know, she's on TV getting an investment from Mark Cuban. I just feel like I've, I've won the lottery in terms of my life, you know, like even starting an alcohol company as a woman would be impossible where I was born in the Middle East. And so, uh, you know, for me, I just, I think it's definitely that I call it a combination of immigrant hustle and uh, survivor's guilt <laughs> that drives me. But, um, you know, we've, it's been a long journey. It hasn't been all success, right? So there's been a lot of ups and downs. Uh, we've almost gone out of business, you know, three to five times. But in the past three years, we've been doubling year over year in sales. We're actually the number one selling single serve uh, wine product in U.S. convenience now. Um, and as the team grows, my business partners and I have really wanted to infuse a lot of these, you know, business practice ethics that just come from stuff that we were making decisions about personally and really encode it into the business. And so 
that's where B Corp came in, where we were thinking, what's a model that's out there that we can adopt that actually really bakes this in? So everybody from our investors to our team, to our board, to our customers knows what we're about from a business perspective. And so, um, you know, my story, obviously, I'm very concerned about the climate crisis being from the Middle East. Um, you know, ever since I was a young person, I guess just because I've been in the Middle East and Texas, and so I've always been around the oil and gas industry, and it just keeps getting hotter every year. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I really have been worried about it, you know, since I was a teenager and trying to think about how I can combat that in my business, because anybody that's a maker of stuff, you know, it's, it's environmentally impactful, right? You're creating things that are using plastic, that are being shipped all over the country using uh, carbon, fossil fuels. And so there's no amount of me personally not driving or going vegetarian that's going to make up for something at that scale, right? And then naturally as a feminist, as an immigrant, and now an American citizen who values democracy and freedom, I'm also extremely passionate about social justice issues and making sure that opportunity is equitable for everybody. And so you look at my industry in alcohol, it's very much so a middle-aged or, or to older white male club. And so how can we be the difference in our industry, bring that innovative thinking that we brought to the product in terms of making it taste good, making the brand experience really different, but how can we push our whole industry forward by um, you know, pushing, making an example of a new and next generation business model, i.e. B Corp or getting certified like that. And then also aligning with other companies in our industry to try and, you know, actually make change because I feel like that's our best opportunity of just people that go to work every day. Um, it's not trying to recycle more at home. It's, hey, how can I take the extra day a week or month to connect with other people in my industry to change our whole industry for the better on these areas. So um, happy to talk more about, you know, what we've done there from B Corp to some of the things that we've done with Naturally Austin and, and other initiatives. I think, I, I know you, you may have a product with you that you can, you can show, but I think that the, the, your point about codifying um, the principles and the values of your business into the actual structure of the business itself is really an important consideration. You know, it's one thing to have them written down. And we've talked here a lot about if you want to maintain a culture, you have to start by the founding team writing down what they care about and, and sort of bake that into the, to the dialogue. But it's a whole nother thing to align all your stakeholders around those values. So the B Corp is a is a powerful tool. And I'm, I'm on the board of a B Corp myself uh, called Network for Good. And wow. it was the same idea. We, we, we spun it out of a nonprofit. So we had a bit of a legacy there, but the goal was to codify some of the core principles in a way that allowed, allowed everybody, even when we took on new capital to say, look, you have to, you kind of have to participate in this way. Otherwise this isn't a fit. Uh, so you talked about two big buckets. You talked about social justice and you talked about, um, uh, call it climate change or sustainability. Um, having seen your packaging and things, it seems like you've done a lot of, you've invested a lot of energy in trying to design your product to kind of minimize its footprint. Can you talk a little bit about that and what the, either what the costs or what the benefits were to do that? Because oftentimes people, oh, it's too expensive to tackle those problems when my observation is that if you actually 
apply some design thinking, you can often figure out ways to reduce your costs, but you have to actually take the step. So could you talk a little bit about that piece of it? And then maybe we'll come on to social justice side too, but, but tell us a little bit about that sustainability part. Right. So, you know, I actually saw a question in the chat, like, what is the most important cause to me if I had to pick one cause? And, um, you know, you have to use that kind of thinking when you're designing a product as well. Like, what are you going to prioritize when you're making decisions on a product? And so for us, um, and for me personally, the climate crisis is the most time sensitive crisis that we're facing at the moment. We literally have 10 years or less to dramatically reduce the amount of carbon that's out there in, in our world. And so that's the one that we've really been optimizing for above, for example, waste or recyclability since we have landfill room for many, many years. Um, that, that personally was what I prioritized for. So when we were considering um, you know, packaging formats, obviously the box wine format has often touted itself as being the most carbon efficient. But what does that mean from an actual supply chain perspective? It means I can, you know, fit more product onto a truck. So it's cheaper for me. Like you said, I don't have to send as many trucks around the country uh, because of the sufficient packaging. Um, and so that, that helps me save on freight and, and that helps me, you know, helps me get more of a margin to my wholesaler partners, my retailer partners versus my other competitors that are in other packaging formats. Um, it also helps to be different. Right now in the beverage industry, we're facing a crazy aluminum shortage, um, you know, due to the pandemic and cans and all of the different things that have been happening with dynamics in the industry. And so us being in Tetra Pak, you know, it's, it's a great boon to us from an environmental perspective and impact perspective, but we also don't have to compete with every single other company for cans now. We have our own uh, available, scalable resource in Tetra Cartons. And so um, that was sort of like a, a benefit that came along with that. Um, so, yeah, I would just say, you know, for your company and, and what you're trying to line for, you know, whether it's waste, water use, energy, you know, for us, it's carbon and, and that world, um, you know, th that's one of my challenges for founders that I speak with or other people that I meet with in the industry is like, well, just pick two or three things that you do want to track, you know, research how you're doing on it, benchmark it and track it, have a goal for it. I think most people don't even have that. So it's a great place to start. Oh, Scott, you're muted. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's my first time on Zoom <laughs> in the last 40 minutes. Um, uh, for, for your business, are you publishing your kind of either your sustainability objectives or the key metrics that you are tracking? And if so, how often are you doing that? How are you doing that? Um, you know, so it's, it's one thing to talk about these things is a whole nother thing to be out there sharing. So how are you handling that as a business? Yeah, absolutely. So the things that we are tracking right now are our carbon impact. Um, we have a amount of dollars that we are able to donate to nonprofits that's allocated within our marketing budgets and event sponsorships and things like that, that we're tracking. We're also tracking things like what percentage of our leadership team are from marginalized groups or women, um, other kinds of internal metrics like that. Um, we're actually doing a public crowdfunding raise right now. And so our company is very transparent with everything from our financials to 
you know, sort of our investor updates and things like that. And so um, having just completed this huge benchmark assessment as part of the B Corp application process, we're currently in a certification process. We haven't actually gotten it yet. And so, um, you know, we intend once that's public to, to, you know, announce that along with our certification. Um, one thing that we did uh, get done last year was something called a plastic neutral certification. And so, again, as a maker of stuff, um, you know, there's parts of my product that are made with plastic that I can't avoid because it needs to be waterproof, right? And so we've actually taken the weight of all of the plastic that we're putting into the world um, at Future Proof and added that up and worked with a program to remove that same weight or greater of plastic out of nature from waterways and things like that. So um, you've heard of carbon offsets. There's now things like waste and plastic offsets available as well. So more things to think about there. That's cool. So um, we'll ask you for the crowdfunding page. Is the crowdfunding still open or is that? Yeah, it's still open. We actually, uh, we, we reached our goal of a million dollars, which is really exciting. I'll put it in the chat for everybody to check out, but uh, we still have about another $400,000, I believe, left in the round. If anyone is interested, it'll likely be open for only another 45 days or so. So um, please check us out if that's of interest to you. That's great. And uh, and, and so thank you for posting it. I I think one of the things that comes up um, from, from a business, whether it's sustainability or social justice, is getting comfortable with the idea that, you know, it's imperfect, right? Your, your, your point is a good one. Hey, we use plastic in our product. We haven't figured out a way to solve for that yet. So we're doing something, uh, you know, we're doing the best that we can in an alternative way. How, how, uh, how much of a conversation did you and your team have about stepping out on some of these things? I mentioned at the top here that you, you're not wearing your sustainability or your sort of social justice as you, as part of your marketing and your brand presentation out front. It's a part of who you are and what you're doing, but is there a tension there or has it been just very natural for all of you? Well, we are a sales oriented organization. And so this is, you know, selling party punch is our top, you know, priority by, by every means, you know, I think the way that we can, as an operations team, take that burden off of our sales team, take that burden off of our customers. I mean, you talked about how we don't really talk about it that much. I mean, for me, I'm in the alcohol beverage industry. I want good vibes for my customers. I don't want them stressed about climate crisis or about social you know, equity issues when they're enjoying my product. I want them to relax and have fun. And so I, I think that that all founders should look at how, what can I do in my business to take the burden of how stressful and crazy our world is right now off of my customers and off of my community by the work that we can do in our organization. And so um, there is some conflict in terms of, okay, if I wanna use a material that's more environmentally friendly, but happens to be more expensive potentially than another solution, um, you know, I have to go back and prove that to my team and show them the ROI over time um, and, and make the business case for it. And I've had to do that, you know, a few times and I don't win every single one. But the fact that I'm doing it and we're, you know, we're leading the change as much as we can and being the change that we want to see 
um, is what's important. And just, you know, I think, I think employees and investors and other stakeholders um, are looking for hope and are looking for purpose and are looking to get aligned with a really cool company that also makes the world a better place and not have to take that on, you know, in their free time. They can do that at work and feel fulfilled in that area of their life. I think that's very motivating. So thank you. And, and, and I think that that, look, the tension that's there is, is a natural one and it's okay. And I think just being real about it and, and to your point, hey, we sell party punch, right? That's, that's what we do. And making sure that everybody understands that so that that's part of who you are, but it's also that it's not exclusive, right? You can do other things. A um, couple of quick questions here. We have about five minutes left. Uh, one is your crowdfunding experience. Why did you choose to to do a crowdfunding campaign versus other types of capital raising? What has your experience been? And basically what kind of what stage are you at from a funding standpoint? The specific question was around somebody who's, Andre created a, uh, did a pre-seed round with crowdfunding is thinking about doing their seed round in it. Um, so kind of where are you at and what made you choose that mechanism versus lots of other ways you could have had access to capital? Right. So, I mean, any consumer brand, I think, should very seriously look at crowdfunding because, you know, you look at trying to raise money, you want that smart money, right? You're bringing in uh, perhaps a celebrity investor or an investor that can bring, you know, optimizations to your supply chain or other benefits, right? But as a consumer brand, there's really no better investor than your actual customers. And most of my customers, I don't want to assume are accredited investors. And so crowdfunding actually allows the opportunity to sort of democratize uh, the opportunity of investing in a startup. I'm not saying everybody should spend their life savings on it because it's a very risky investment. Startups are a risky type of investment. Um, but I, I think it's really interesting with all the legislation changes that have been made recently. It's very exciting. It's, it's almost like 20 years ago when we're first able to trade stocks ourselves for the first time or whatever. But now with these startups, it's like the, the investment opportunity has just been created for people to create, you know, really great wealth, crazy amounts of growth um, in this high startup, high growth category um, that's never been available before. So if you don't know, as of March, you can actually raise up to $5 million now through crowdfunding from anybody with $100 in a credit card can do it through the platform. And the admin from the founder's perspective and COO perspective um, is a lot different than it was just two or three years ago. You know, on your cap table, it can all be listed under one entity, um, makes things a lot more simple from the paperwork perspective. Um, so that's the sort of why consider a fundraising piece or a crowdfunding piece. Um, the practicality of actually running a campaign, um, you know, I'm, my company's been on Shark Tank. We have you know, hundreds of thousands of customers all over the country already. We're not a pre-seed company. Um, and so, you know, I would say most of the companies that are on there are in that earlier stage. And so our valuation was actually a challenge for a, a lot of the investors that are on that platform because they're more used to seeing those startup valuations. So I wouldn't be scared of it just because you're pre-seed. The challenge is going to be, how do you get that momentum on your campaign to actually get the investments rolling in? So, you know, just like any fundraising campaign, we were pitching people offline during the crowdfunding campaign at the same time. We had a, our pro rata investors invest in the campaign, as well as an angel group that activated on our campaign. 
right when it launched. So we got some major momentum that helped our campaign get in the spotlight. Then we funder, you know, our partner for the campaign um, noticed that we were getting a lot of investment very quickly. And so they put some more of their resources behind it, helped us reach our goal. So um, I would just say it's it's not like there's nothing to it. You can just post up there and, and raise a million like that. But it definitely has been the easiest fundraising that I've ever done. You know, we've raised almost, I, I think, over $13 million now, pretty much all from angel investors, you know, one by one coffee shop meetings um, over the past 10 years. And so this, this raise was by far the easiest experience I've ever had and would definitely recommend it to founders to check out the opportunity now. I think one of the things, just going back to your Shark Tank example, do your homework, right? The most successful uh, uh, crowdfunding campaigns are not launched with the first person putting their hundred dollars in and hoping for the best. It, you know, you you craft a campaign like you would any other campaign, and it includes, like you said, pitching people offline, seeding the platform in that way, getting some momentum behind it. It's a, it's you have to be thoughtful about running it from start to finish to get where you want to go. Um, a couple of speed round questions for you. Think uh, thirty second answers. When you look at your business model, do you consider yourself direct to consumer? Are you a B2B play, B2B to C? Where, where do you fit on that frame? And then you're a little constrained because of the nature of your market, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, legally we're B2B. We're not legally allowed to sell to consumers, but that being said, we're a brand owner. And so of course we think about, you know, marketing to the consumer channel all the time. Okay, what about private label or co-branding? Have you considered doing, um, let's just say for example, you know, beatbox by Founders Focus. I think that'd be a great brand. I'm sure it'd be highly successful for you. Um, I'm sure you could find other partners that might be better, but uh, have you considered that or consider private labeling the product? Um, so, you know, we're focused on building beatbox as a brand. And so that's not really congruent with what we're trying to do, but in terms of like an influencer box or a partnership box and doing something with an artist or something like that, Yes. And, you know, there's actually things that are already in the works that we're excited to announce later that, this year on that. Yeah, I'm a major influencer in your category. So <laughs> afterwards, I'm, I'm confident that I might be able to help you sell a case or two more. Hey, um, founders love Beatbox, so I don't doubt it. No, there you go. Um, one last one. Have you considered, um, you know, from a, from a, I guess, a brand standpoint, um, meshing with your music you know you talked about the music and the passion and and festivals and music festivals is that sort of the the kind of collaboration that you would naturally lean towards absolutely i mean my dream is for this to be the red bull of the alcohol industry you know red bull's got uh sports events and their own record label and you know building out the whole lifestyle brand to its full potential is of course our dream that being said, we're like where we have to be very laser focused as a startup, you know. So right now we're just focused on we're only in four percent of all the stores we can be in and just the 30 states that we're distributed in today. So our mission for the next two years is to get Beatbox in as many of those stores as possible and uh you know build the brand out so that everybody knows where to find it and everything else. But um, yep, we, we have a website, eatboxbeverages.com and a store locator if you're looking for it. Um, but yeah, big, big plans for the brand uh, for the rest of our lives. Yeah. 
Awesome. All right. Well, we're at time. Amy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Took a lot of notes and tidbits out of it. So thank you very much for being here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at T. Scott Case and uh, join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions. Hope to see you there.